0: Welcome to Millennium Live, a Digital Diary podcast. Hi everyone, it's Alex again for a special edition of the Millennium Alliance Millennium Live podcast series. I'm really excited about today's interview. For those of you who have listened to a previous interview I did in a new area that the Millennium Alliance is is getting more interested in with each passing week talking about blockchain and crypto and uh, decentralized finance and all these different areas around how the blockchain can advance technology in a way that a lot of people have never seen before. We'll like this interview as well, because in continuing on with a little bit of a kind of blockchain crypto theme. Today we're interviewing a gentleman who I've been aware of for a little bit of time, who runs a very cool organization that's trying to revolutionize healthcare through the blockchain, which he's going to which he's going to talk to you about. The gentleman we're going to be talking to today who's who's waiting to jump in in a second is Pradeep Goyal. He's the CEO of an organization called SelfCare. Just to give everybody a heads up if you've not heard of SelfCare before, Selfcare is the first decentralized benefit administration platform, protocol, and currency to revolutionize healthcare and benefit administration in the United States and around the world. Uh, Selfcare Foundation has established the goal. Its main goal is to redefine care coordination, improve access to care, empower the consumer with information and ability, reduce benefit administration costs, and eliminate fraud and waste from healthcare and benefit administration around the world. So especially for our healthcare listeners that are tuning in today and for anybody in general, regardless of industry that you work in, healthcare touches everybody. So what's great about today's interview is Pradeep is going to talk about his mission to try to revolutionize an industry that needs as much revolutionizing as, as possible because of all the challenges that come, especially when it, when it comes to the insurance side and dealing with the insurance side and the costs of healthcare as well. So this is for me as as you guys know, I'm a little bit of a healthcare junkie in the sense. So to talk to someone like Pradeep, I've been looking forward to this for for some time. So we're going to touch upon a number of things about Pradeep's life. We're going to talk a little bit about his work which you're going to hear about in terms of how he was involved in implementing the Affordable Care Act and we're going to talk about self-care. So with no further ado, Pradeep, welcome welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We're really pumped to have you.
1: Thank you, Alex, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you so much for the warm welcome, Alex, and I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: Likewise, likewise, me too. Pradeep, before we get into the work that you've done in healthcare specifically, I want to start from a little bit from the beginning, because for our listeners, I, I want them to get a little bit more insight into you personally, because you've, you've had quite an interesting life, and it all must have started somewhere. So for, for, from, what, from what I know about you is you grew up in India, so I, I would love for you to touch upon where you grew up in India, what your family life was like, what you were interested in as a kid, and then uh, eventually what brought you to the United States after college. I think that's a good place for us to start, and then we can get into the, the fun crypto blockchain stuff.
1: Sure, Alex. So that's certainly going down the memory lane. I haven't really thought about it in a long while, but happy to, uh, to reconstruct a bit together. So I got into, well, first about uh, myself and my family. So I was born in India, in uh, the northern part of India, just in the south of the Himalayas, so in the foothills, as they call it. And my father was a judge and a lawyer, but he came from a large business family. So my, my uncles and his brothers were all running fairly large businesses. And my mother also came from a large business family. So they were entrepreneurs, but successful ones, multi-generational families that had built businesses over decades and and some even going into over a century. So business was something that you grew up around, even though my father was not really actively practicing. uh, He was actively practicing law uh, and he was a fairly successful lawyer. And then he went on to become a judge and then he eventually retired to go back to being a lawyer. So I grew up around two things, law and business. But we also, some of my family members were quite deep into healthcare physicians were a big part of our life. You know, my great uncle was a physician and he had a whole clinical system that he was managing, but it was a, a rural regional systems, right? Nothing national, but certainly you got to see how healthcare works, you know, when it really does work, the very personal touch that really drives the value and quality of outcomes. I went to engineering school. Uh, first, when we, we moved around a lot, as a judge, he was moved around. Every three years, he was moved to a different uh, legal jurisdiction. So I had to shuffle around in lots of different schools when I was young. So that basically evolved into a love of books, because when you move a lot, you don't make that many friends. You end up essentially becoming an avid reader. My mom tells a story fondly that we were living in a relatively small town, and one over one summer, I came to her and I complained the library was devoid of any more books. I'd run through them all. <laughs> it probably was more of a hyperbole, but the point was I read a lot. And that made me very curious. And I, I still read to this day.
0: Were you, were you encouraged by your parents to read or, or were they reading and it was just kind of part of the family culture?
1: I think my mom was definitely, my father was a constant reader. You know, and as a, as a lawyer, he saw it to his, uh, to his uh, necessity of his profession to read all the time. My mom was also an avid reader, uh, and she still is. My mom is one of the most fascinating readers. She now is in her late 70s, and she devours a book every other two, three days. Oh, wow. And and she reads, you know, not fiction, but she's a big fan of history. And uh, the other day, I visited her, and she started telling me all about uh, Roosevelt's wife and how she had an impact on our society and how she was the force behind it. And she pulled out three, four books that she had just finished reading about his wealth and his family and the impact they had on our country and the world.
0: So I've got a great, a- I've got a great book offline uh, that she'll like. She may have read it already about, um, about FDR. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send you that recommendation.
1: Yeah, so she's still incredible um, source of knowledge for me and inspiration. Uh, so I think both were good role models to read, but then I just took, took a love. Of, I had developed a love of reading early on. So I read a lot and it was everything, you know, I didn't really know to choose. So I chose, didn't choose really, I, read whatever I could lay my hands on. As a kid, you had limited access to the things, but I grabbed everything. I even, you know, would sit down in dad's library. He had a massive collection of law books and tried to pour over some interesting cases. Found them excruciatingly boring, but still, <laughs> you know, that. but eventually I realized that law is not something and that I would want to get into. Around uh, mid school, I got sent to a day boarding school as a very elite school, kind of like the Ivy League of India. And it had a very interesting set of teachers. So most of the teachers are international. Uh, we had teachers from all over the world, but we also had great environment. It was sort of like, a, uh, as schools go, it was, in a, it was a really great experience. So there, I developed the love of debating and and the speaking, public speaking, because we used to have every Friday sessions on and competitions where you had to perform. And we were divided very much into Harry Potter style four houses. And I ended up becoming one of the four house captains. So then you had to continuously win points to win the trophy at the end of the year. So reading was one thing you got points for winning debates and declamations you got points for. So you you were forced to become very multifaceted because you couldn't let your house down, right? Everybody's counting on you to to lead um, to some victory. And we ended up, you know, we ended up doing very well. My house won in the end, the, the trophy that nice. you collect points is what you do all year. And then you win at the end. So that was the final year. So school was really formative for me. The school made me very aware, international. I mean, they taught us everything. It wasn't really about certain subjects. They wanted us to be world aware. And one of my teachers used to say, if you leave here, I want you to be able to go study at any university in the world. You need to be able to do well in Ivy League of US or Ivy League of India or IIT, which is the, the most highly sought after technical institution in India. You just need to be ready. So they, they rounded us out pretty well. From there, I left and went to university to do systems engineering. It was actually a bit of a letdown because university was too easy. School was very rigorous. You know, they held us to a very high standard. And then university was almost like a traditional university where they asked us of us, basically, you know, a subject matter specific education. It was not very challenging. You know, there wasn't a whole lot more expected of you. So I found school, uh, university to be underwhelming. So I started to read more and I started to to explore. And and, uh, because I was not that engaged, I was bored. I started to uh, work jobs and started to do entrepreneurial activities. And that was really great because I was pretty young. I went to university when I was very young. I had skipped some classes in school, doubled up and gone from fifth to seventh grade, eighth to 10th grade. So I I was a couple of years ahead of my peers in terms of age. So I got to university when I was very young. As a result, I graduated when I was pretty young. And I got out of there and I had uh, developed a love of business by then. So then I decided to come to U.S. because I wanted to continue my university education in computer science.
0: I wanted to ask you about that transition to the U.S. Was that something that you kind of always knew, even maybe at a younger age, that was eventually going to be part of your part of kind of like your journey? How did coming to the States come into the picture?
1: So, no, I didn't expect to. I mean, the family expected that I would stay and run the business. Uh, my brother had left for the U.S. a few years earlier. He is older than me. And they expected that being the only you know child in, in the family that was business oriented, that I would run the family business. So that was the expectation. I developed a lot of technology. So I started to read a lot uh, in my final year in university. And computers had just started to come into vogue. And I just found the, the, the whole idea of automation programming uh, to be so much more efficient Use of time and effort. So I got into very as a hobby into software development, and this is Cobol, Fortran days. And I knew that US is where the best computer education was. So I convinced my parents that I need to go to US and get a couple of years worth of very intense computer education. What was
0: it was it a tough sell to them to go to the states?
1: No, to my mom it was, but my father was always of the view that you should make your life choices, uh, and we we'll, our job is to give you the intelligence to make good choices, but. We're not going to convince you. My mother, of course, was saying, how can we send our second son off? And then we'll have no one around. (laughs) But My dad convinced her that, you know, this is his destiny has to be shaped by him, not by family business. So I went off to U.S. with their, of course, with their consent and with their blessing, arrived in the U.S. and uh, went to university. And I was a little bit surprised. I found the university to be less challenging than I thought it would be because I had such high expectations of the university education system and from afar it was the the pinnacle of you know uh, of a graduate education so I started to double up and triple up on my courses just to stay busy one of my deans uh, uh, assistant dean she said to me why don't I hire you as a math teacher a substitute teacher because you seem to be always asking for more and more courses why don't we actually put you to teaching others I said, sure why not so I got into she put me to work as a Math tutor, as a, then I ended up being a computer science lab administrator and on and on. And while I was there, I wanted to do something, you know, it still was way too much free time in my mind. So I started to think about what I could build, what software I could write. And I wanted to do something big and bold. And you have a lot of time as a computer lab administrator to to while you're waiting for people to ask you questions, you can start doing things. So long and short of it is, my brother and I got together. I was about 20 then, and he was 22. And we said, what could we build in software that would revolutionize you know, business life? What can we do that's big? And we were huge fans of uh, Apple, of Steve Jobs. Uh, we were sort of like following him as the rule breaker, as the disruptor in chief, if you will. So we decided that we want to build it. Uh, and we, were follow- we, we loved Macintoshes. We loved Apple. Uh, products back then. This is early 90s. And we decided to build something that would be aligned with that vision of paperless office. So we started to write software uh, to automate all normal office transactions that would happen between parties. And we thought, why don't we build something that will really first save trees, second save cost, and third automate life. So we started to write a paperless office software and we were still pretty young kids. And then we got into our head that we want to go show this software to the to the world to the business so we had one car between the two of us we took that car and we drove down to orlando florida and we uh, went to the, the the marriott universal marriott hotel the big massive behemoth and we got ourselves into a show a trade show called imaging and automation trade show we bought ourselves the smallest table you can afford buy because we couldn't afford very much else we propped up our pc and our and our computer and I was still furiously programming away trying to make the software better and a gentleman walked up to us and said what are you kids showing and we were flanked by IBM on one side and uh, you know other big guys like Unisys and all the big companies in here mm-hmm. with no first trade show, never done it before, no idea what we were doing but you know I was grinning year to year because I was happy to be there among the giants and this one fellow walked up to us and said tell me what you're doing. So I showed him my software and he said very nice idea but what industry Are you planning to focus on? I said, what do you mean focus on industry? I have no idea. What do you mean? I'm thinking everybody can use it. And he said, no, you got to pick an industry. So I said, what industry are you in? He said, I'm in healthcare. Uh Well, then healthcare sounds good. How how would you use my software? (laughs) And the guy said, well, actually, your software isn't really meant for healthcare. It's not healthcare savvy yet. Give me your information and I will introduce you to a friend of mine who runs a big healthcare insurance company. A few weeks later, I don't know if it's four weeks or six weeks later, we got a call from this um, gentleman, Ike, saying that my friend and partner uh, or my boss is going to be in Baltimore to meet with uh, CMS, the big federal agency. And he wants to swing by and meet with you. Uh, And we had, you know, uh, we were literally working out of our our basement. We didn't have much of a physical footprint. So we quickly rushed out there and rented a little office, Mm -hmm. you know, our signs, hung them on the wall, me and my one of (laughs) one classmates who was working for me part-time, my brother and our receptionist, we all got dressed up the best we could. And in comes the COO of one of the larger health insurance companies. Wow. And he um, he sat at a you know at a very funky conference table and had us present to it. And he said to us at the end, you know, what you have is pretty interesting, but it's not really ready for our use. It's not something we could use. And I said to him, said Jay, tell me what needs to be done. I'll get it done. Just tell me what is missing and I'll build it. And he looks at me and goes, whatever I need done, you will do it. I said, just tell me what needs to be done. We'll get it done. And he, he quoted that quote back to me 30 years later. He said, I, I bought into you guys because you had absolute confidence that you could do anything. And he gave us a small project, tiny little project, $50,000, which for us was big money mm-hmm. as, as university kids. Uh, we tried it, we did it, we pulled it off. And we grew from there, and eventually this was the same insurance company for which I ended up being a CIO many decades later. So it was a journey from being you know a kid who they adopted basically, you know, and took, them, took us under their wings, gave us a chance. and we ended up you know helping them grow enormously. Our company grew enormously. We had practically every blue cross in the United States with our customer. Wow. Uh, and uh, we sold the company to WebMD, and then from there on became WebMD exact, and then went on to do other things. But the point is that that trust that Jay put in us when I was literally you know a kid with unshaved you know mustache <laughs> and with an absolute abundance of confidence, but not necessarily a lot of healthcare knowledge. And I remember my first day I came to Blue Cross North Dakota to deliver my first version of the software. It was like minus thirty Celsius, you know, wind was howling. It was like uh, the coldest day of the year. And uh, they said to me, "Okay, you need to try your software in our." mail and payment processing room which is in the basement of one of our buildings so be there at 4 a.m so i started my first day at blue cross at you know the basement at 4 a.m in freezing cold with a bunch of uh, really really nice nicest people you ever met around what around what year was this This literally 1993 and i remember you know being just so incredibly grateful to be in a real organization with real you know serious business and being given a chance to work there and then it's from basement to the boardroom, right? That was a journey that took about 20 years. And the company grew quite big. We sold it to WebMD and, and then uh, continued on. And I started a bunch of healthcare startups after that. But it all begins with um, you know, the, the basic concept that our parents were very keen for us to, to explore our full potential. I never went back to India. In fact, I didn't go back to India for 20 years after I came. I was too busy wow. building healthcare systems, I think it took me 25 years to find the time to go back. My parents came over eventually, and we reunited in the US, but I couldn't make a time, couldn't find the time to go back for a quarter century. So that's been the
0: journey. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure they've been extre- extremely proud. And I appreciate you giving us that, that background. I mean, a lot of really cool nuggets from some of the stories that you were talking about, which, which I find personally very interesting. I wanted to ask, before we talk more about Solve and what you're doing now, because I want to make sure I save enough time, a good amount of time for that. Because interesting enough, on the last interview uh, podcast I did with Brad Wilson, who I was mentioning to you before, who's the former CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, we talked a lot about the Affordable Care Act. And what was interesting about him, which our listeners know, is that he took on the role of CEO of that insurance company in North Carolina two months before the Affordable Care Act, Was stamped into law, and mm-hmm. what I wanted to touch upon with you because you were on the implementation side of that law, the ACA, Obamacare. So I wanted I wanted to ask you because for our listeners, Pradeep was involved, as I mentioned, of the implementation of Obamacare. He worked on both sides, the consumer-facing side, meaning the exchanges and the implementation of the exchanges, and then worked on the Medicaid exchanges, which were then offered to the states to expand coverage for their citizens for their for their residents anybody who would have seen your resume and what you were doing it makes total sense for you to be involved in this but how did that come together what how how were you seen from the federal government's perspective as someone that could that could help bring this all together
1: so even before obamacare if i may go back a bit so while uh, president bush was in uh, in the white house he was trying to launch a program called hsa's health savings accounts mm-hmm. and um HSAs were very politically controversial. There was a view, a political view that HSAs will disenfranchise a lot of the, uh, the underserved population, the, the, uh, and it's going to do a harm to the healthcare system. And I saw HSA to be a very logical thing. You know, I'm an uh, IT innovator. I'm not a political animal, but I found that HSAs made a lot of sense. So very early on before HSA law came into effect, I started to collaborate with the Bush administration in providing uh, essentially technological thought process on how one could implement HSA models, started to collaborate with uh, organizations like the American Research Policy Institute, which was consulting on HSAs with the Bush administration, went to the White House and presented. And I started to formulate the prototype of what an HSA account would look like, how you would implement an HSA account if you're a bank, what a debit card would look like if you had an HSA debit card, how could you pay for just doctors appointment would not pay for, uh, you know, video store rental. So this, all this exciting, uh, really complex stuff back then was something I got pulled into because I'm an innovator and I enjoyed it. And the administ- Bush administration said this is the kind of stuff we need to sort out so we can convince the, the both sides of the aisle, political aisle, that this, this can work. There was a lot of skepticism that can implement? Can it be implemented? Will it be good for the country? Will it be good for citizens? Will anybody use it? Will the banks ever sign up for operating HSA accounts? Who will be the administrator? And so on and so forth. So I was very proud of the fact that HSAs, eventually the law was written and passed. Even when the law was written, there was a lot of skepticism, will the law actually work? And it did, right? 80 million plus Americans have HSA accounts. High deductible health insurance is now considered a, a, a de facto for many employers, especially small ones. So I was very involved in that and I saw how you have to listen to everyone even if you don't agree with their point of view, even if the fears in your opinion are irrational or, or overstated, they are real fears and you got to work through them or else things don't work. So that HSA experience was a great one. It was a, it was a really, it also evoked a certain degree of gratitude for being allowed to participate. Only in, the, in America can a you know, kid, based. I was still pretty young. I was in my early 30s, late 20s and early 30s. And to be able to allow to sit and present and implement ideas and see your ideas adopted at the national level was very gratifying. So I got hooked on what one of the, I have a dear friend of mine. He used to be the um, state CIO for Minnesota, Tom Baden. And he invented a term during Obamacare implementation called IT Patriots. And he used to challenge us and say to, People like IBM and Deloitte and my company and me, you know, to do the right thing, you know, even if it is painful, even if it's difficult, even if it's expensive. So I got bought into the IT Patriots hook line and sinker. I felt it the duty in many ways to do the right thing for the country and the country will do the right thing for you. And that had already been formulating in my head during the HSA days that we did good. We did right and we did good. And people actually benefited from it. So that was the first taste of success where politics meets healthcare in a positive way. From my perspective, despite the skepticism, facts bore out to be a good thing. And that was a stepping stone towards when Obamacare came around. And when the invite came to, to be part of the implementation, it was no hesitation. It meant I had to leave, leave my company in the hands of others and uh, go do this. And I did. It was uh, it was fine. Uh, I had... Uh, by the time the gentleman who first came into our conference room, you know, 20 years past, Jay Martinson had retired. So I went to him and I said, please be the president of my company so I can go do Obamacare. So he ended up working, you know, as my partner and in, in running my company. And I went off. and That's really did. cool. So it was a full circle, right? I mean, I came to work for him when I was a kid. He came to work for me after he retired. But it was, it was appropriate, ironic, but appropriate that the guy who mentored you eventually wants to work with you.
0: That's really cool. That's a really cool part of the story. Was it like with when you were working on the HSA implementation with Obamacare, did you have a personal opinion of the law? Did you get the same sort of motivation that the law itself, with the way it was being rolled out and what the potential of it was, could do a lot of good like you felt with HSAs?
1: I did. I think Obamacare was a much bigger law, right? Is a much bigger law. HSAs were very, uh, originally it was written to be appointedly, yeah, it, it was, in fact, one of the biggest criticism HSA was that it's not going to serve every American. It's only going to serve uh, a certain affluent population, which is not necessarily the case today. But that was a fear. But it was written to be a narrow law. It, it, that's the only way it's going to get passed. Now, it, of course, is universally applied and used by a lot more than just the affluent. But the ACA was much, much more all encompassing. It was very bold. Uh, it is meant to address all the fundamental disparities in healthcare. right? You have this working poor who are not covered by Medicaid, but can't afford insurance. They were the biggest at-risk population group in the U.S. Where you have two jobs. You, you make enough to be above poverty line. You're hardworking, but you don't, qualify, you don't make enough to be able to spend a traditional health insurance premium. But Medicaid boundary threshold was so low that you qualified as being too rich for Medicaid. Mm but too poor to afford healthcare. And that's a really bad place for families to be where they they are working daily to support their families You know, husband and wife both work two jobs on average, uh, but they still can't afford the health insurance premium. That's a bad place to be because they have kids. there. If one of them gets sick, it is financially catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Both of them get sick. They're done. Right. So, So this was the issue. So Obamacare or ACA tried to expand the safety net to the working poor. And I thought that was a smart thing because working poor end up in emergency rooms when they fall down, when they get sick at an enormous cost to society and to their own families. And you end up with kids being out on the street or being out of school, it's devastating to our society. And that is not a political issue in my mind. You know, if we have a significant percentage of Americans who who are not qualifying for any healthcare program, state-sponsored, government-sponsored, or commercially sponsored, then that's that's a society as rich as ours. That's a travesty. We gotta fix that. Agreed. Whether you agree politically on how to fix it, I don't wanna get, I don't know. Maybe there is a better solution than ACA out there, but something had to be done. And, and that's what President Obama did is to say, we're gonna cover the net, we're gonna stretch the net to include the working poor. And that's what this Medicaid eligibility expansion is all about, right? Stretching the Medicaid net to include working poor. Uh, into the Medicaid coverage. And that's where it became a state-by-state state decision, whether certain states will offer expanded Medicaid and others won't. And that's still a political fight in many ways, where states who could do well in terms of citizens' well-being have other considerations, financial considerations, political considerations to not expand Medicaid. But that's my I saw my job as making it possible. I didn't see my job as enforcing it. So my job was, in my mind to make it possible for a state to offer expanded Medicaid, technically, to offer systems and to make those systems functional. Uh, But whether they do choose to do so or not, you know, I think that's a decision that is very much a complex decision for each state's population and politics. But I think I saw this as those who want to do it should be allowed to do it. Those who don't want to do it is their choice, they'll come around eventually when they see the, the system working properly.
0: And, and I, I was I was referring earlier when we were offline, just talking about Mississippi, you know, because with the new COVID relief package that's been passed, there's a lot of money, obviously, that is being given toward the most vulnerable people in relation to access to healthcare. Similar to in 2010, I think part of, if I remember correctly, part of the deal with states was for the federal government for the first few years to pick up the bill for the expansion Definitely. of Medicaid to the people in the States that needed it the most. Correct. I still just can't, I just can't get my head around. It doesn't seem like there's any reason other than politics, especially when your state is not paying the bill to extend access to healthcare to people in your state that need it the most. You, you talk about a society as rich as ours and as powerful as the United States is in so many areas but especially when it comes to comes to e- economically that i still can't believe in 2021 governors of states when they're not making the payments out of their own state budgets or turning down expansion for healthcare for for their citizens just to me 11 years later is still mind boggling
1: well i mean there are considerations and again po- politics is always going to be a key consideration the state politics environment and what they deem to be important you know also i think part of this conflict or this this you know why it's difficult to comprehend it's built into our society all the way back to the founding nature of our constitution you know it's individualism and everyone should earn their right and everyone should contribute and how you interpret our constitution becomes the foundation of these beliefs and these actions right you know you can say that we are a, a state that wants to provide a helping hand but not a crutch and sure. we, we believe in that. Now, you and I may disagree with that interpretation, but that's the belief system that drives those choices. To say, well, if we offer unnecessary or excessive support, it will make people dependent. It will. That's one consideration. The other is, okay, you're going to give the federal government's going to give me a match as a governor. Uh, I know that you're going to do a match, maybe 100, hundred percent match, or you'll cover hundred percent of the cost for expanded Medicaid for the first two three years. Then I'll go to 95.5. I'll have to pay 5%. Then I'll go to 90.10. Then I'll go to 80.20. And you're going to keep dropping the level of support you're going to give me as a federal government. And I'll end up getting a bigger and bigger budget in my state budget eaten up by Medicaid because Medicaid is one of the largest, if not the largest component of every state's budget. So they're afraid to let this thing grow bigger, even if it's by a buck. And the probability is that in two, three, five, seven years, this budget could get to be from 20% Twenty percent of state budget, twenty-five percent, which means either schools or highways or police or airports are not going to get funded. Then that's a trade-off that they don't want to make. In their mind, you know, we're making do with our healthcare system. If you really say go to emergency, we are somehow figuring our way through this current highly expensive system. I don't want to do anything to make it more expensive for myself. Can you can say it's some? It's not always in the best interest of the citizen. At times, uh, at times it is also based on projections that don't don't always pan out the cost increases are are one perspective cost reduction is another i've heard so many debates alex where one side of the aisle would argue this is going to drive the cost through the roof and you can get some think tank in washington to write a paper saying this bill or this action will cost you two trillion dollars over the next 20 years and they'll come up with a bunch of statistics to prove that point of view and then you have the same exact bill in the hands of another think tank group on the other side of the aisle and they'll tell you this is going to save you a trillion and a half dollars over the next 20 years. One will take the view of utilization. The other will take the view of prevention. Simple, right? Simple argument. Oh, you're going to drive utilization of my hospital beds up, which means I'm going to have to pay that much more to the hospitals so I can't afford it. The other will say, but you don't have to go to the hospital. You will end up in an ambulatory clinic or at at some pharmacy getting a flu shot so you don't end up with a flu in the hospital. So prevention is cheaper than utilization always. Sure. But they're both projections, right? They're both projections. And politically, you can choose whichever point of view you want and use that projection to defend your actions. You can either pro- use this report to defend massive increase in cost that the state of XYZ cannot afford, or you can take this, we're saying we are going to have massive reduction in need and utility, which means cost will collapse. And the truth is always in between. Everybody knows that. The truth is never this far rosy preventative um, projection, nor the extremely dark economic catastrophe projection, society gravitates to the middle, to, the, to, the, to what is logical and functional. But during the debate, it becomes so polarized, it becomes so extreme that you end up with you know, people digging in on this projection. What I've seen about HSAs, about Obamacare, neither the best case scenario panned out, nor the worst case scenario panned out. What panned out is what was a rational middle in both cases. Right. And that's true for most policy, unless the law is so bad that it only rewards one side. And there are laws like that. But neither President Bush nor President Obama wrote laws that were so lopsided that they would, only, they would only enrich a few and harm everybody else. So HSA's helped improve access to care, no doubt. And so did ACA in different ways. Could we argue that either law was perfect? Absolutely not. Did they both help Americans? Absolutely they did and still are.
0: Yeah, it's 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 well said. Let's move on to solve, and let's talk about what you're doing now and how this all came about. I want to ask you first and foremost because many people have that I that I've listened to have said healthcare could benefit more than any other industry from blockchain technology. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, I do, but perhaps for different reasons than what people say blockchain can help healthcare. But I do agree that blockchain can and will and is already helping healthcare, but in maybe more startling ways than one would expect uh, or has a reason to expect. So yes, in, in a nutshell, Alex, I do agree. Blockchain represents a significant paradigm shift. And I know that's a overused cliche in so many ways, but cliches are are born out of necessity to express a point. I think there is such a desperate need for healthcare to re-examine its core premise of how healthcare should be implemented. And I would say this, that I love healthcare. I have worked with some amazing people in healthcare, both in commercial insurance, in hospital systems, as a patient, as a father of a patient, as a administrator, as a health policy advisor, as a health IT exec. Uh, I've seen healthcare from many angles and I've been very fortunate to have been allowed to participate in conversations that most people don't get to participate in and to, to even be allowed to have a say. So I got to look at and examine my own assumptions. And I'll tell you that, the big epiphany for me was when I started to realize this one fundamental truth about healthcare, that we keep investing in the current model without examining its underlying principles and assumptions. And then we keep asking, why isn't things getting better? Because those assumptions are no longer relevant. There is a fundamental premise. And I'll give you a very simple epiphany. This is I remember this day and moment. So there's a really smart, incredibly talented individual that was part of the uh, was part of the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, and I believe he's now back uh, in some capacity. Or the other, his name is Andy Slabbert. He used to work yep, at. Yeah, I know.
0: I follow him on Twitter. So
1: Andy was at uh, uh, had come from United, I believe, Optum, and he was working on the implementation of Obama. Sure, Canada. I don't know him.
0: Uh, he's handling he's handling a lot of the vaccine rollout right now for COVID.
1: Correct. He's back in the Biden administration. Sure. And at one point I had the privilege of going and listening to Andy speak at the JP Morgan Chase healthcare conference in San Francisco, where we both went. Uh, He asked me to come along for some good reason that only he knew. And I heard him speak and he was speaking about interoperability and how all these great technology that exists, and this is now, you know, seven, six, seven years ago, and how that can help Americans if we can get the systems to interoperate. And I was sitting there thinking, but we've been saying this thing for 30 years, I said the same thing to myself when I was in college, when I was starting my first company and when I built this paperless office thing, I used the same exact terms as a 19, 20-year-old kid that we're going to cause everything to interoperate seamlessly and it hasn't happened and it certainly hasn't happened in healthcare. So I asked myself, we have plenty of technology, we have plenty of money, we have plenty of desire to make change and nothing actually changes. What we do is we swap one system for the other, largely the same functionality, maybe with a slightly different user experience. Maybe instead of a web browser, you get a mobile app. Maybe from a mobile app, you get back to a web browser uh, or to a tablet. But in the end, the processes, the assumptions behind all healthcare administration is almost like it's baked into into rock. There's nothing we do to change it. So that day I said to myself, I'm gonna go back and re-examine why interoperability doesn't work. And that was the beginning of SolveCare's journey in my mind, as to why is this healthcare system actually not working in a manner that is logical, efficient, and effective as it could be. It is working. Don't get me wrong. Healthcare isn't not working. We all do get healthcare. And whether it's expensive or whether it's difficult to access, by and large, healthcare system serves us. But it is by no means sustainable, affordable, accessible the way it should be and could be. And it always goes back to these underlying assumptions of who should own the data? How should data be shared with each other? How should systems talk to each other? What is a patient's role in all this? Who makes the decisions around patient? Uh, and, and I think all this 30 years prior to that movement sort of brought me to the point where I said, if I'm gonna do something with my life, I'm not gonna spend the rest of my life doing the same over and over again with a different you know, screen, with a different cover, different veneer. I'm going to, to demand and drive change in healthcare. That will actually be good for patients or for parents. So that was one moment. There was another incredibly talented woman at CMS. Uh, her name is Jessica Khan. And Jessica went left to go to work at McKinsey after uh, Obama administration. I'm not sure what she's doing now, but I think she's at McKinsey. And she was one of those firebrands, right? Take no prisoners. She is, I believe, the same. But I haven't talked to her in a few years. And she would challenge every assumption. That was her talent. She would ask you to analyze your assumptions all the time. So you would go to her with what you would consider some brilliant idea, and she would start tearing it apart by just challenging your underlying assumptions. So I got into a many, I had many co-presentations with her many times. We spoke together on stages, and I always loved listening to her. I would love to listen to her again. And she would challenge this notion of interoperability sometimes. And I got to ha- have some really lively debates with her. What does that mean? So these guys, people like that, people like Jay, who always made you rethink your assumptions, these are all people who are trying to make healthcare better. And I learned from them. So my evolution as in a professional wasn't just my own experience. It was listening to these incredibly talented intellectual and, and uh, experienced people who taught me how to think different. So long and short of it is that SolveCare is trying to do that paradigm shift. And I see myself as a client. If I was still at Blue Cross in the CIO role and SolveCare came to me and offered a solution, would I buy it? Would I use it? Would it help my patients or members? Would it help my providers, my hospitals, my labs, my pharmacies? And if it does, then yeah, we got something. If not, if it's going to look like every other centralized system from the big IT giants, which are, you know, which have a gluttonous appetite for revenue, but no appetite for innovation. They call innovation, but what they call innovation is repackaging old paradigms uh, with new screens, right? And, and bigger, a different blinking light. So this time you buy that server, next year you're gonna buy a different kind of a server. We'll rename it, we'll call it faster, cheaper, better. But in the end, nothing will actually change in healthcare. They, they're not gonna drive innovation. I mean, I came to that firm conclusion handling billions of dollars in IT spend over my career on the big boys. And I realized they will never ever, they stand in the way of innovation. They are not the innovators, they are the innovation preventers. So I decided that I needed to go out and do something that no matter how long it takes is worth doing. And I said to you earlier, um, Alex, I tell my team all the time, guys, we are on a mission here. That mission probably outlasts my lifespan, probably yours as well, my team, and probably the t- two generations after that, but we're going to do something that will make healthcare work better. And every year we're going to make progress in that goal, but this is a hundred year journey. So I teach that, tell that- to solve the team who comes in, you're going to run this company after me. And then the, you're going to have to train people to run it after you because we're going to be on this path for a very long while.
0: What was it about blockchain technology that stood out to you as a way to make all of this hopefully come to fruition?
1: There was an interesting moment in my life when, uh, when, I, was, when I was at Blue Cross and uh, we were discussing the, uh, the role of the patient in a meeting and people kept talking about this, something, somebody called a beneficiary and in my you know logical mind, I didn't know who this beneficiary was. So I asked, I said, who is a beneficiary? And they said, what do you mean who is a beneficiary? Beneficiary is you and I, the patient, the father, the, the child. I said, why don't we call, why do we call them beneficiaries? Seems so cold and you know, like I'm preloading something, I'm getting something for free, I'm a beneficiary. He says, well, you're a beneficiary of our insurance plan. I said, but don't I pay for it? Yeah. So why am I not a client or a consumer or a customer? Why the heck am I a beneficiary? So well, that's the insurance terminology. We, you, we call people who pay premium to receive health benefits as beneficiaries. I said, this is terrible language guys. <laughs> this is terrible me and my kids aren't beneficiaries. We are paying clients. Back then, even as a family of four, my you know our premium was about $2,500 a month. So we're paying 30 grand a year. I said, look, I'm depositing a car in, in, in the Blue Cross's account every year. I don't wanna be treated as a freeloader or a beneficiary. Call me a customer, call me a client. It became a philosophical debate, right? Uh, as well, this is just the way we call them. There's no harm meant. There is no ill will here. What are you... so? What are you raving about, you new lunatic CIO? And I'm like, (laughs) it's all about how we think of our patient. You know, we are worried about eligibility and enrollment and groups and administrators and brokers and provider networks and rate contracts and utilization management and disease management, but we never talk about patient or consumer or customer. There's not a single system we own that is about the patient. It's all about me. My insurance plan, my risk, my reserves, my utilization, my rates, me, 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 me. I said, how much more disengaged from the end consumer could we be? And then, why are we surprised when insurance companies are rated on you know below cable companies in terms <laughs> of quality of service? Why are we surprised? Because we don't even think about the customer ever. We don't even call them a customer. So that was one moment that was seared in my memory that the model of thinking and the, in the hierarchy of priorities, the patient is way down below building and janitorial services, and who's gonna clear the ice from the, from the parking lot. Well below that somewhere is this individual called beneficiary who we never ever think about. That's wrong. That's just not the way we're gonna fix healthcare or make healthcare better, even if it doesn't need to be fixed.
0: What would you say, Pradeep, is, is the core issue that Solve is trying to solve?
1: So the core issue we are solving is we are saying, let's flip the model where we subscribe to patient rather than patient subscribing to us. And if we do that, we actually move towards a patient-centric healthcare delivery model. So let's start with simple things as to, does the patient have an identity that we all agree is their sovereign identity? Instead of everybody being inside our systems and identified in our system, let's give the patient an identity Let's start by identifying who the heck is our customer. Let's all agree that they have a global identity. So my vision is that blockchain represents an identity of a patient that all of us, insurance company, doctor, hospital, pharmacy, lab, transportation driver, ambulance driver, can all agree that we have a single source of identity. And I don't need to control my identity source. You don't need to control yours. And They all don't need to talk to each other. Let's make patient a source of identity. So let's use blockchain for that. Because there we can have immutable identity, unmodifiable, verifiable, globally accessible identity. We can all agree to. It will eliminate so much risk, so much waste, just trying to figure out who is pretty when every time I change organizations. But once we have this identity, there's so much we can do. We can then attach data to this identity, right? Which means all the medical records, instead of being in Epic here and Cerner there and McKesson here and Blue Cross's system here, we could actually give the patient the ability to own their data which means they could also give consent for you to use that data. So now we are starting to talk about the basics of humanizing the customer, giving them an identity, giving them control over their data and seeking their consent before I consume their data. Now, how revolutionary is that? And why aren't we doing it anyway? Oh, because it's not in our business interest because, you know, we need to maintain our data source and you, the hospital administration should maintain yours and then the pharmacy should maintain theirs. And we all, They never share that data because it's all our intellectual, it's never intellectual property, it's business advantage we are all hanging on to, right? And then we all complain about how we're not making any margin because our administrative costs are so high just to check eligibility or to do interoperability. So connecting all the dots together, I came to this epiphany that interoperability of systems is a bad idea. You can spend billions and trillions of dollars trying to connect all these systems together. You will never get there because these systems are not supposed to interact. They were designed to be for a business purpose that never meant for that data to be accessible to all. In fact, these are grain silos with no windows, and you're not supposed to go in there and buy a bag of grain from that silo, which is what your data is. So we cannot talk about taking these grain silos, connecting them with some interoperability layer, and expecting that magically data is going to start flowing. It won't. And I had one more epiphany because I was implementing the state... uh, Health Information Exchange for the state of North Dakota. The governor had asked me to be part of the HIE Council. And I was designing and architecting the HIE, the Health Information Exchange for the state. And I had all the hospital systems in the room. We had Exolotive, uh, you know, technology company there in the room. I was a Blue Cross CIO representing the biggest payer in the state. And I was advocating for this HIE. And one of the big hospital systems said to me, their CIO said, "Preet, you are too much of an idealist. You want to build an HIE on which we're going to share data. And you have given us a very compelling solution that can technologically work. But I'm not going to share my data anyway, no matter how good a system you build it. Because if I put the data on the exchange, other hospitals will able to read it and they'll be able to pull this customer away from me. It's a competitive advantage. I don't want to give information about the patient to anybody else who might try to grab that patient from me. So you're asking me to share what I consider competitive. And I said, I don't remember his name now, but I said, the data needs to be shared because a patient is not gonna get better care if we don't, they won't be able to move between systems. They won't be able to get proper care when they change jobs or change um, uh, cities. He said, well, then they just have to remain with us. I wanna hold on to them for the rest of their life. So I said, so are you telling me that a patient that is in your health system in Bismarck, if they have to go to Fargo and you don't have a clinic or a lab there, that they basically are SOL, they should drive back to Bismarck three and a half hours to get a lab test done with you? because you will not put their data out? He said, that's our business model. And I said, well, this is wrong. This is fundamentally not what we want to do. So HIEs were supposed to address that issue, but business didn't want to participate, right? And I started asking my question, as long as we have these self-serving mindset, institutional mindset of, I own the data. But you know, we had a very healthy debate that day and everybody agreed that data actually doesn't belong to the institution, it belongs to the patient. We're just custodians of that data. But because we are custodians, we think we are owners. We're not. The data belongs to you. We're just, we are in the name of security and privacy and protecting you from bad people. We're just holding on to your data with the premise that whenever you want it, you can come go, come get it. But then we'll make it extremely difficult for you to come get it.
0: If you were to go back to that person now and talk to them about what you're doing with Solve, do you think it would be easier to get them over the line because, you know, via blockchain, it's yes. it's anonymous?
1: Yeah, I would say to them, look, if the data is patients, you can hold on to the data in your system but I'm going to tokenize this data where when the patient presses a button in their care wallet to say, I want my data to move from you know hospital A to hospital B, the token will enforce that movement of data and you don't have to do a thing, but you also can't stop it. And this data belongs to Alex. And when Alex says, I want to share this data with somebody, you don't have the right to say, oh, Alex, you can't change hospitals because your health is less important than my bottom line.
0: They can't get in the way now.
1: They can if we, as we move towards the patient empowerment. So what SolveCare is trying to do is to basically provide an alternative to systematic interoperability.
0: Because basically what you learned is interoperability is basically is impossible.
1: It's technologically achievable with great cost and functionally it's impossible. Got it. And We will always see semi-interoperability sold off as some things are working. You see the Mayo Clinic system talks to the Mayo Pharmacy. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, but what if I want to be, you know, I'm not in Rochester and I want to you know, take my prescription to something that is not in your, well, then that case, you know, you are an out of network patient or some silly jargon we'll invent to tell you that you're just doing something wrong. My point is that our vision is not just the patient, but also the doctor. The doctor is also equally fed up. It was a point in time where I ran around the state of North Dakota talking to physicians. I drove from one interstate to the other. And also to average, you know, like city, small town mayors, we would meet in gymnasiums, we'd meet in, uh, you know, uh, it was literally a, to get to know the heartland of America. Do,
0: do you live? I I don't even know where you live. Do you live in North Dakota? No,
1: not anymore. I did when I started Care, I moved to Fort Lauderdale.
0: So oh, okay. There. Oh, I I remember seeing that. I'm I grew up in uh, Aventura.
1: Oh, okay. So, not so I'm not
0: I'm not I'm not far from Fort Lauderdale. I know your area very well.
1: Like twelve fifteen miles south of a uh, yeah. Yeah. So of, I'm
0: a I'm a South Floridian, but yes. I'm sorry. Keep going.
1: So um, I think the those lessons, you know, the government. Uh, meetings, the implementation challenges of HSA and Obamacare, the building, rebuilding and building and rebuilding the insurance systems over and over again with no real cost or quality improvement or patient empowerment, uh, recognizing that we are chasing this, this, we are worshiping this temple of interoperability without ever seeing any ROI from it that actually uh, can be measurable or achievable. I started to say, I'm going to re-examine my assumptions and I'm going to build a platform that is going you know, to allow the organizations that do have a strong interest in, in patient empowerment. And, and interestingly, at Blue Cross and, and many other Blue Crosses, not just North Dakota, but and many others, there is a clear understanding in the executive suite that we need to engage the patient. There's no doubt about it. If you talk to Brad Wilson, he would tell you that. Uh, I would tell you that, my former boss um, will tell you that. And Paul, uh, who was the CEO at uh, at Blue Cross, he would say the same thing, that patient engagement and empowerment is the only way we're going to reduce cost. And insurance companies and government agencies are very keen to improve cost. Uh, so that's where, you know, but you're not going to achieve it with the old systems. The old systematic interoperability model will prevent it for the next 100 years. And I think it's time for us to uh, to blow up that paradigm. Maybe not blow it up, but leave it in place for where it makes sense. But there's more places where it doesn't make sense. And that's where a soft care. Blockchain based interoperability, where identity, data, consent are in the hands of a sovereign individual, makes a lot of sense. That's where we started. But, but you know what really happened is we realized that this idea is so fundamentally powerful that it goes well beyond benefits. It goes to disease management. It goes to preventative care. It goes to pro bono care. It goes to drug research. There is so many ways a individualized You know, data node that a patient can be, that a consumer should be in their control, it unleashes so much power that now our platform is being deployed in scenarios that we never imagined. You know, it's sort of like you unleash a genie. And now you realize that when you flip the model on its head and when people get it, what this flipped model does, then everybody from pharmaceutical giants to hospital systems are starting to look and go, well, maybe I'm not going to blow up my current interoperability system and my investment in IT, but these initiatives that I've been languishing, that my board wants to implement, my CEO wants to see done, that I don't have a mechanism to afford, that I don't have a mechanism to roll out, Solve is a platform in which I can imagine the unthinkable and implement them very quickly. If you're looking to create a coordinated digital network of any kind, be it Care coordination, disease management, benefit coordination, payment coordination, transportation coordination, any kind of an effort where you need multiple parties to coordinate. The current siloed systems immediately fall into the trap of interoperability, interoperability, and lack of systematic data exchange. You can use a published subscribe model of solve care on the blockchain, where the, you publish, everybody agrees to publish the data to the node of the patient. The patient becomes sovereign, identified, immutable store of data and everybody publishes the data to them, but the patient controls the, the movement from their wallet, which basically makes you and I the interoperability hub. So instead of some data center in the cloud that is magically moving data between all systems which never exists and never will, why don't we make it a consent-based interoperability in the hands of the patient where they can flick a card, left side and go to the doctor, you flick it to the right, it goes to the pharmacy, right? I mean, that's how it needs to be. So my mother, who is 75 years old, can do interoperability without knowing that she's doing it.
0: Because regulation tends to slow innovation down in the, in the healthcare space. As there's obviously, as you, you know better than anyone, there's a lot of hurdles, especially when it comes to the management of information. Do you foresee this being an issue at all?
1: You know, regulation is there to
0: protect the patient first and foremost. I think the most important regulation we always
1: need to take into account is that is the patient's privacy and rights being protected. Because The regulator in the end should be, and then generally most concerned about patient, then they are concerned about fraud, waste, and abuse, and they're concerned about equity of access. There is nothing that we are proposing that, when deployed in, a, in innovative ways, you know, harms the intent of the regulator. Now, will there be regulators who will need to be convinced in certain jurisdictions that this is a good thing? Yes, of course. We did that convincing for HSA. We did that convincing for Medicaid expansion. I've been an, around regulators, and I see them as intelligent, very thoughtful human beings who you can explain your intent to, and if they're convinced you're doing the right thing, they'll find a way for you. You know, they may not get to your point of view overnight, but if you can show them the value, they will find a way to get you there. But in general, I think regulations in some ironic way helps us when it comes to HIPAA, right? The Health Information Portability and Accountability Act you know, written during President Clinton's years that says patient has absolute right to their data and they have absolute right to protect their data from being misused right? That's the intent and purpose of HIPAA. But there is not a system on the planet that actually enforces patient rights. All it does is today you go to a doctor, they print, give you a form, you sign your rights away, and then life goes on like it did before HIPAA. They have your records, they keep them under their control, they don't share with anybody. Yeah, you can demand your records to be shared with you, but beyond that, there's no portability. So it was supposed to be that you could take your records from one you know, hospital to the other freely. Now you can legally do it, but you can't do it functionally, so difficult to do. So HIPAA put the intent in, but it's never been enforced in a manner that actually yields value for you and I. It's actually seen as a burden for you, both you and the doctor. It's an annoying form you have to fill out. When it's an annoying form, the doctor keeps on record, but they still did things before and after the same way, largely. Mm-hmm. So HIPAA is a good law. It gives us rights, but with no mechanism exists to actually exercise our rights. So SolveCare platform actually allows the patient to exercise their rights under HIPAA, under Tech under GDPR, which is today very hard to do because business processes are not designed to empower you. Business processes are designed to exclude you, by and large. You and I as a patient, you and I as even a doctor, which is why doctors feel so disenfranchised. And without quality of care delivery, there's not going to be a quality of care outcomes. So we have to empower the patient and the doctor in a manner that they are re-empowered, both in terms of who they are, recognizing them as their identity, allowing them to consent and control their behavior and their actions and their participation in healthcare, including control over their data, and also giving them the ability to do things, more advanced things like delegated payments. Why can't I, as an insurance company, give you the authority through a digital token to go see a doctor that is pre-approved in my network, and when you see the doctor just give them the token and I'll redeem the token for the service they provided you, why do they have to bill and adjudicate and We can eliminate so much friction out of the system if we rethink these underlying assumptions of beneficiary over there, the freeloader who needs to be kept under control under your thumb, you know, in a sandbox where they can't do any harm and we must make all their decisions for them. Come on, guys. Dehumanizing our customer isn't going to make you effective, efficient, or beloved organization. Every CEO that I work with at Blue Cross or at Aetna, Cigna, United talks about patient engagement, patient empowerment. I don't think they have thought beyond that those words as to what does that actually mean? Because here's the thing. If you empower the patient, there is a rebalancing of power, right? Mm-hmm. You can't hold on to all your power and then say, oh, I'm going to empower Alex. With what? With what? If you're going to hold on to all the decision-making power at all the time, then what are you empowering me with? You're basically treating me as an imbecile who can not do anything for himself and shouldn't do anything for himself. So empowerment, it requires transfer of power. Which means that we as organizations, including the one I used to, to oversee as a CIO, has to decide what level of empowerment are we comfortable with. And whatever level that empowerment it is, you can design a digital network to achieve exactly that goal. So SolveCare isn't, is not meant to be a platform that an insurance CIO can use. It's a platform that a hospital CIO can use. It's a platform that a patient can Use If they want to build a community network for care, you can use a community church could use a platform to build a collaborative care model for transportation assistance or whatever, because churches often get the elderly to the hospital and back. My view is that anytime people are collaborating and need to collaborate to solve a complex problem, our system makes it so much more easier to launch these digital networks. And I'll give you a final statement here. You know, there was a time we launched this eligibility portal, it was a web portal where the doctors could come and check whether Freep has insurance and what his mm-hmm. code is. And we were so proud that we got, you know, eight, 10% adoption. you know, so instead of calling us uh, all the time, 8% of doctors were using it, then it became 10, then it became 12 and cost millions of dollars to build and operate. We could build that system in SolveKit in a week or in a month max, it would cost almost nothing to run. And it would be much more foolproof and accurate because doctors, patients could keep their own data up to date, and I would not need to to do all this rigmarole that I was doing as an insurance exec. So my point is that we also can save a tremendous amount of money in this IT infrastructure that is so inflexible today that making the slightest change, the bill you see at your desk is hundreds of thousands to tens of millions of dollars. You know. Because it's wrapped in such fancy language of, oh, well, we're going to have to change the member table and the rate table, and we're going to have to link them. And you know, there's a lot of uh, issues here, and we are linked to all these doctors whose rate table systems are not up to date. And IT jargon I am an IT guy, I know what that jargon means, but it frustrates the business to no end. I would go and sit in Paul's office, and he would say, Pradeep, I want to do something. And I would go, Paul, well, you know, this little app that you're thinking about building about wellness. You know, it's probably a 3 to $5 million prototype. And you'd be like, why can't we just build it for 25 grand like everybody else can? And I would say because the whole system is so interdependent and interoperable that everything is so bound together into these rigid pathways of data that changing anything is a nightmare. And, and again, it goes back to, this is just pure, sheer lunacy. We have invested trillions of dollars in building this massively inefficient infrastructure that nobody likes. Even the people who built it don't like it, if they're still alive. And we are worshiping this thing. And it's, the, the real irony is, it's not just the United States. This interoperability problem is everywhere. It's not just the United States. It's just, it's most manifest in the United States. We have invested the most infrastructure. So we have the most to, to lose or gain or complain about, but this is an issue everywhere. Patient is disempowered disenfranchised and disengaged from their healthcare decisions and workflows and processes, and most importantly, their data, for so long that we don't even know what else the world could look like. So I'm creating a model that says to the world, it doesn't need to be this way. It won't be this way, whether we do it now or we do it in three years, in five years, by necessity of economics and societal need, this change is coming. And the next generation will demand better outcomes than we can deliver today. So, whether we like it or not, this transformation will come, and software is showing you a way to get there way way more easily, cheaply, without friction and By the way, guys, our ideas are, are you know largely public domain, so go copy them and run and you know if you don't like my implementation of this framework, build your own. but the transformation is unavoidable because you cannot stop gravitational force, and I think transformation healthcare is so long over so long due is kind of like gravitational force. It needs to be acknowledged that we have done far, far too little for the patient and the doctor and far too much to silo off data into unmanageable containers that don't talk to each other and never
0: will interoperate. Fascinating stuff Pradeep. I wanted to ask you one final question just in relation to the token. Would you say the solve token is, is considered a utility token? And can you talk about the different purposes it serves now and what other purposes you maybe could see it serving down the road
1: it is a utility token it's meant to be a token that you can program inside a digital network to do very many different things at the fundamental level you can use the token as a means of value exchange between network participants so you got a participant a and a participant b could be anybody could be a patient and a doctor could be a Physician and a specialist, or it could be insurance company and a hospital system. They are just participants in our network at the lowest level. So, anytime a value needs to exchange between patient between two participants of a network, a most ineffective, efficient, and zero cost way is to use the token to move the the value around. It's fully auditable. It's fully programmable. So you can basically link to this token a care event, which then assigns the value based on that care event which can be computed value, you can move that value around. So basically it's programmable money. Think of it that way. And yes, and it's event driven. But it's also a, fung- a token, which is you know is, uh, available in the market and is traded on many exchanges. So it has an intrinsic entry value. So for example, if a patient wants to make an appointment with a doctor inside a telehealth network, which on a platform, they could buy the token in the market. And now that token will remain programmable money all the way till it's exited. And then it's going to be potentially sold back in the market. So it has two, two forms. It has a variable free, float, free floating value in the market, but then it gets fixed inside the network when it enters the network. So it goes from waveform to matter, matter back to waveform, if you like quantum theory, right? So it's a very intelligent token, which we believe addresses a lot of the payment friction in healthcare and really in any industry. And we have people who are trying to use Sol token now outside of healthcare as a programmable payment system Uh, It is instantaneous. It's fully auditable. It can can be programmed to only be usable in proper scenario, which means as an insurer, I can give you a token and I can program the token such that you can only spend it on certain things. Go back to my HSA example, right? HSA, the big problem was you put money in your debit card. You should be able to use it only in a hospital a pharmacy or a doctor, not at a video store. That memory, how difficult that was to do, I programmed that into the token. I wanted to make HSA type of a, uh, purpose-built payment model, real, because it was really hard to do, yeah, in that time frame. So, you know, everything I'm doing at SolCare is a learning from how healthcare is not working well for the last 30 years. There is nothing in the SolCare platform that isn't born out of being frustrated at the current system and dealing with a problem that was intractable or really expensive in healthcare. And as a, both health tech CIO and as insurance CIO and as a government, you know, uh, uh, IT uh, partner to many state CIOs. I saw these issues and I said, this is absurd, we need to make these things way more efficient. So a lot of this design of SolCare platform is to address the intrinsic problems of healthcare administration and healthcare coordination that I saw every day in every aspect of healthcare. But back to token, it's programmable money inside a network, it's an intra-network payment using its uh, free floating value in the market. It is a gas for the uh, network, uh, for each network, if you want to allow for uh, network-to-network exchange of cards or, in our system, everything is a care card. You know, when you send a record to uh, your doctor, you're sending your record care card. When they send you an appointment, it's an appointment card. When you uh, check eligibility, the insurer sends you an eligibility care card. Everything is a, you know, five by three card, physical, you know, card, because, I remember this, um, you know, I don't know if it's legend or truth that Steve Jobs would carry around in his back pocket these $1, you know, dollar store cards that you can buy as a pack of hundred for a buck. And he would write down his priorities and he would keep them in his back pocket. And that was his day, week, month. If that's true, that makes eminent sense to me. So I wanted to make healthcare as simple as playing cards. So everything is broken down ultimately to an event and a card. And attached to the event and a card is a token. And that triangle is very powerful. Events can be programmed, cards can be uh, generated to look lo- the way you want them to look based on your age, your gender, your language preferences, your past experience and level of expertise. And the token is programmable to the event and the card so to re- render the value you want. Incredibly powerful Trinity that can you be the building blocks for any healthcare coordination you want. Because if you fix the building blocks, you can fix anything. So we essentially are going to the model of saying, let's reimagine healthcare, not in terms of serial processes, but rather as entity-centric relationships. Patient has a relationship with a doctor, with a family member, with a pharmacy, with an insurer, with an employer, with a broker, with a friend. That patient as an entity, once defined, can have infinite relationships. And each relationship patient is interoperability hub. Instead of going to this you know, bus model that interoperability imagines, let's imagine patient as, uh, let's do interoperability like a star, where the patient is the nucleus. It becomes so much simpler. Instead of having all the pel- planets talk to each other, let's have the blockchain be the single point of identity and consent and data of the patient uh-huh. or control over data on the, for the patient. And all of us are subscribers to the patient rather than patient being a subscriber to all our systems. Instead of having the patient log into three EMR systems from three hospitals that he goes, that his wife goes and his kids go to.
0: Sounds insane.
1: It's insane, right? I have been to all the major hospital systems in the US for one reason or the other, both as a patient or as an advisor. And I have, my records are spread across probably two dozen major hospitals in the US. I don't know the logins. I don't know the passwords. I don't know who to call and what to do. And I have no idea what date and time I went to them. I don't even remember the names of the hospitals.
0: And, and, and there's no, you can't see the whole story.
1: There is no way I could reconstruct my care journey of my life. No way. I hired, you know, even if I spent a million bucks on it. Why don't I have the ability to have a care journey in my hand, which tells me the chronological sequence of what happened to me and around my healthcare and who did what for me and who I paid and whom I didn't and who got paid how much and that journey is where everybody publishes and subscribes data that they need. And that I would simply say, well, Alex is a specialty care provider, which I need to, to show my last three years of journey because it's important for him to understand my health patterns and send that journey to you. It doesn't even exist.
0: Yeah, it's so absurd. More
1: than, the, more than the data, what we need is control over data. It's okay if the data is sitting in some hospital systems EMR, but I need the ability to consent and enforce that consent to move the data from point A to point B. So we are creating a blockchain-based healthcare publish-and-subscribe system, which is mostly based on identity, consent, and events. And using that model, you can reprogram any healthcare system. Old ones in the U.S. or new ones that China is imagining or the ones that are needed in India to run rural care better. What we have discovered is that we haven't met yet in a, you an know, intractable problem that suddenly doesn't look a lot simpler when you when you flip the paradigm. And when you start looking at it from a, a star model of interoperability rather than a bus or a process model of interoperability, and I have, I've done IT enough all my life, and I'm a I'm a thinker. I like to I think one of the things I've always tried to do is to think of IT intellectually, not just technologically. I Always try to think of what are we doing and why are we are doing and who are we doing it for and, what, and exactly what the success looks like. So to me, this is about as fundamentally revolutionary as it's ever going to get. I mean, this is the I'm not a Steve Jobs, but I want to make sure (laughs) that an impact. similar to where if you're going to think different guys, then let's think different. If you're going to give the patient centricity of of, uh, existence and they're going to have an identity to begin with in our ecosystem, then let's do that. Let's give a let's create this platform on which patients have a voice, a sovereign presence, a permanent presence and control and, and, and ability to participate. And the, and the cost level goes down enormously. I can imagine just my own budget at Blue Cross, I could probably slice up 20, 30% of my budget without hesitation. Wow. That number is enormous. There are tens of millions of dollars and uh, a year that we could just get rid of and eliminate a lot of friction. And nobody would complain that, that something got lost because most of the cost goes into transforming and republishing the same data to different parties on different days, always out of sync, always expensive to transform. Most of what we do is just play around with the same core data sets and transforming and republishing them. And that's just craziness. So I think salt care is challenging the norms, but to our surprise, organizations that are looking to innovate truly, be it pharmaceutical companies like Boehringer, who is a client of ours, or it is uh, or ACN Arizona Care Network, which was trying trying to do much more effective care coordination for diabetics, or you got insurance companies like mine, who past uh, my past employer, who was very keen to really engage the patients, but just didn't know how. Or you're talking with the people like you know Aetna, Cygnus, Uniteds, or Penang in you know Penang in uh, China, or AIA in Hong Kong. We're so talking to all of them, or Zurich Life in Switzerland. There is not a healthcare entity that is not taking a second look at it and going, this is really different. And by golly, this actually is going to work better if it works, right? And we're confident that we have proven enough of this already in the last four years. There's no longer a question of if. So we are looking at 2021 and 2022 as a year of adoption where institutional clients are moving towards significant adoption beyond the proof of concepts.
0: Pradeep, this was awesome. I wish we had more time. I love this. And I know our listeners will love this as well, especially the ones in healthcare, but generally all across the board. And as we were talking offline as well, our healthcare listeners and members know that we've got our healthcare provider and payer event. I think the next course of action stemming from this podcast is to get you more interaction with a lot of the people in the industry that some who you know, and some who you may not know, but are in positions where this your platform could really make a big difference. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. Congratulations on all the success with Salve. I'm excited to see where the company goes. It's been it's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. And I certainly enjoyed your questioning and I would be delighted to come back at whatever venue and format that makes sense. So, and thank you to all the listeners for listening. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out our other episodes. You can listen on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe, and for more information, you can visit mill-all.com.